Welcome to the Investment Matters podcast from Newton Investment Management. This podcast is intended for UK, US, Canadian, Australian and New Zealand institutional investors only. You can listen to important regulatory disclosures at the end of this podcast. The Investment Matters podcast was recorded in line with current government guidelines around social distancing. We apologise for any issues in recording quality. Welcome back to Investment Matters, the Newton Investment Podcast. Today we're continuing our discussion about how we get to net zero uh, and the problem of carbon emissions. I'm joined again by Andrew Parry, our Head of Sustainable Investment, and Laura Sheehan, who's a Global Analyst at Newton. We're going to look at the role of emerging economies in the carbon transition and bringing along the likes of China and other emerging markets. And then also we'll look at we'll look ahead to COP26 which takes place in Glasgow later this year. And I'm going to start with you, Andrew. You mentioned the, the, the US administration. Obviously, we've touched on it already. You know, China, is, I think, provides a quarter of the world's greenhouse gases. I think at latest, maybe slightly more than that. Um, how do you get a sense? That, are you hopeful that there can be a global concerted action? We've talked about G7. There's obviously COP26 in Glasgow later in the year. But can we really move forward without a collective agreement? Do you... Are you hopeful that there can be um, meaningful cooperation there? Uh, global co- cooperation is more likely now than it's been at any time in the in, in the last four or five years. But it, it's still a big ask. It, this is a massive geopolitical issue. The tension between China and uh, America is not going to go away. It's not gone away because of change in administration. It's maybe taken on a different form, but it is going to be an ongoing issue. You know, it's not just China, you know, the big emitters around the world, like you know, India as well, has not signed up to net zero. So we do need everybody to, to act. Now, how is this going to be tackled? Well, collaboration is going to be one thing, but also competition, I suspect, is going to be another. And Laura mentioned earlier uh, climate border adjustment mechanisms. Yeah. I mean, board of taxes, in other words, or the price of carbon. And I suspect that if COP26 in November comes up with anything, it's going to be some geopolitical actions that could begin to see climate and carbon as a competitive economic challenge. And if you want to make that happen, if you want to change behaviours, goes back to my sort of mantra about incentives and disincentives, that could very well be where it comes in. Now, politically, I would imagine in certain countries like America, UK and Europe, that could very well be very attractive because there's no point us actually decarbonizing at home only to outsource our manufacturing to high carbon areas and then to re-import things. So I think there is a recognition of that politically. So how does it get played out? And it goes back to that point where what was missing from the Paris Agreement back in 2015 was the right incentives in the system to change behaviour. And that has to be the big hope uh, that you know, COP26 and the competition between nations actually leads us to actually having some tangible incentives to change behaviours and discourage bad actors in the system rather than giving them a free ride, because we'll, there's no way that we can achieve the climate objectives on our own. 
Um, in terms of kind of global coordination between nations, I think it's important that we we try and work harder at kind of, in a, you know, um, effectively rhetoric against one nation or another. Um, we must kind of recognize, first of all, that China, India, um, and other nations are on a different timeline in terms of their economic pathway and development. And associated with that is kind of energy intensity and emissions. So when we think about China as well, and we think about the abundance of emissions that come from that nation, we must also recognize that many of those emissions are effectively ours. You know, we have for many decades moved from being what was, you know, if you take the UK, the UK has moved from being what was, you know, an industrial economy to a service-based economy. And politicians for decades have applauded the reduction in our emissions, you know, seemingly, I think, peaking in the 70s, I believe. But if you actually adjust them for territorial emissions, if we account for the emissions that come from the products we've imported, they actually peaked into 2000s. So again, this is an important issue because China's emissions are also, um, you know, inherently related to ours because we have been exporting our emissions for decades. And it comes down to, you know, kind of import patterns. And as Andrew was saying, creating a, a broad global view on carbon prices and adjusting for it across every nation and economy. When we think about the likes of the G7, that, um, you know, that type of meeting isn't perfect. You are missing very key and important players in the room and we need to build these bridges, not create animosity between nations. It is encouraging the movements we're seeing in China. They have adopted um, net zero um, 2060 targets. They have been critical to the you know, cost structure of renewables and likely batteries too, in terms of the sheer scale and manufacturing efficiency of that nation, and has been pivotal in actually the growth rate and adoption of renewables in Europe. So I'm confident that China is moving in the right direction. And I don't necessarily think you have to think and believe that from more of an altruistic point of view. As Andrew pointed out before, the a renewables-based economy actually transforms the energy system and nation's energy security. For China, they are short, um, you know, gas and oil. They do have an abundance of coal, but that created p pollution issues. But renewables is a chance for them to actually become more energy independent. So I expect that with time, their penetration of renewables is going to accelerate and grow. And actually, the rest of the world is going to benefit from that from a cost and economics point of view. I think you're there. Well, Laura made a very good point about health. You know, we shouldn't forget that the health cost to countries like India and China, as it was in London back in the 50s, from coal-fired power, uh, power stations and industry being very carbon intensive, is enormous. It's actually a big chunk out of GDP. And it's, you know, polluting your home environment is actually what, in a middle-class society, is no longer acceptable. So I think there will be other incentives domestically in China and India in particular as they become wealthier nations 
increasingly individuals will demand more from their environment, healthier, cleaner, because ultimately that's better for the for economic growth. And do remember as well that around the world, in nearly every country, renewable energy is now cheaper than coal and cheaper than oil and gas in most places. So, you know, as, as we scale the renewable energy, so the marginal cost should come down uh, quite, quite dramatically. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, so just finally on that point before we move on. Um, so effectively, you're saying that despite this, this push perhaps by much of the G7 to, you know, maybe to push um, or to make China a pariah for, for various different reasons, um, it's going to, progress is going to happen, whatever. So perhaps we shouldn't be too pessimistic if they can't agree how to cooperate with China. Or do you think ultimately they will, they will to come together because this is too important, um, this solving this issue around carbon emissions? And the, you know, as, as I said, it's geopolitics. And, you know, the, the, the tension between China and America or China and, and the West is, is an inevitable geopolitical tension. It's a rising superpower clashing with the dominant superpower of the last you know, hundred years. So we're going to have to find a way through that. And it would be much better if it can be done on collaboration. You know, competition is not necessarily a a hostile way of doing it. It's a way of actually encouraging development and evolution and acceleration in trends that will have benefits both domestically and globally. Um, and I think that's much better than actually having confrontation and standoff. Um, I think we would all love to see a competition to see who can be you know, the best at renewable energy, who, who can be the best at greening their economy. It's just about having the right incentives in the system that encourages that and doesn't allow a free rider principle to, to happen, which was unfortunately one of the consequences of the Paris Agreement. As I said, 196 countries agree, but emissions continue to, to rise. So it, it's, you know, as Laura has said as well, it's complex. It's incredibly complex and it's not can't, cannot be seen in isolation, uh, you know, uh, from each other. You know, the components of this solving this puzzle are uh, are are going to sort of unfold in ways that none of us expect over the next five to ten years. And let's hope they 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 unfold in a way that is mutually supportive of a better common future for, for, for life on the planet, not just human. I guess finally, again on this, um, we've talked about it a bit already, but uh, the, the Climate Change Summit in, in November in Glasgow, um, do you, what are your expectations there? Do you think we'll get some concrete deliveries? I know you say that it should have been done yesterday. I get that. I'm perhaps asking you this, Laura. Um, what would you like to see and what do you expect that we'll, we'll get out of that? Do you think we'll get a very urgent agreement that is meaningful? I think the first issue with the original Paris Agreement was the lack of binding, um, the lack of binding nature to it. If you actually read the document, it's very loose. It's kind of almost like a casual conversation amongst friends about, oh, look, this is a problem. Yeah, it'd be quite nice to do something about it, wouldn't it? But then there's no real, um, something really substantiating the change and actually penalizing your lack of change, which is why for the last five years, climate activists have 
basically been hitting their heads against brick walls and dismaying as we're actually seeing more climate-related problems around the world, be that forest fires, flooding, hurricanes, extreme weather. And we're starting to recognize that this is a risk, both to, you know, you know humanity but um economies as well so if you can't be motivated by by life at least you can be motivated by the cost to your economy i mean the us is constantly hit with hurricanes on the east coast which has had you know terrible implications for the lives of those living there it's cost lives and it's cost a lot of money in repair and affected industry so when you think about what comes out of um, this meeting, it really is actually putting some sense of penalty for a lack of action. Because if there is no consequence for doing nothing, if you've agreed to do something and there's no consequence for failing your obligations, then the, the agreement is worthless, particularly when it has ramifications that are huge like this. Again, we've seen a lot of talk about global tax, um, you know, mostly targeting at the technology companies that have used sophisticated structures to avoid paying tax. Well, as Andrew said, this would be a wonderful time for the world to actually agree to something like a universal carbon price, like a minimum carbon price. It doesn't actually have to be that high because I think the implication of just having something and agreeing something would be quite profound. And from that, each nation could add their own tax on top of it. Because at the end of the day, the issue with, um, with climate change and climate risk is the lack of costing the environmental damage of emissions and the environmental damage of our own activities. So for me, the most important thing is we do have some sort of tax. And from there, you start to actually unlock incredible solutions because you improve the substitution opportunities of these new technologies against old technologies. You actually catalyze the growth of new industries, new research into future developments that can bring down the cost of these solutions and you provide funding to actually pay for the transition and even even those companies that are most hated your oil and gas companies us or european it doesn't matter if there's actually money to be made using their old wells to hold and store carbon they will happily make it and they have plenty of capacity and ability to actually you know, accelerate and develop a very strong kind of hydrogen-based product. There's a lot that is unlocked once you actually start to create these costs and incentive structures. We don't need any more hot air. It's not good for climate change for a start, but we really need some tangible action. I once talked to a central banker who talked about the, the role of incentives in the system and the lack of the incentives to shift capital and to accelerate the transformation needed is woeful. And we need to move away from political dogma. A lot of people may be listening to what Laura said, though they'll probably be bridling at the word tax. But we you know, think of it as an incentive or a disincentive to actually change behaviours. And, and that's what we need, because the private sector is there, is willing and will fund it if there are the right incentives to get this, to get it going and to encourage and to remove disincentives 
for action. So that's what's got to ha happen at COP26. If it's a lot of people slapping each other on the back and talking about you know some wonderful stories and talking about you know the, the challenges ahead and how you know, they, they know what you know, what they need to do but they're not doing anything, then we're going to have another failed opportunity like we had in December uh, 2015. So we need to see some tangible action and to actually step up to the plate and take responsibility for it and not just to rely on, on, on rhetoric alone to do, to do the work. It won't work. You know, in terms of, I guess, it's more of a government level and a kind of how each nation thinks about their own people. But the, the, the one challenge that I worry about is the inequality that can come through from poorly formed, um, you know, uh, tax structures and cost structures on these environmental emissions because when you look at the breakdown kind of on a, on a person level and income level they're very disproportionately skewed to higher income individuals they have a much higher share of carbon emissions kind of per person and i don't know if this is just me having a bit more of a slightly kind of jaded view when it comes to G7 meetings, but when I read the 100 billion per annum that was going to go to poor countries to help them, you know, transform their energy systems, I just thought that's not going to their energy systems, that's going to go against mitigation against all the emissions that we have put on this planet and the climate impacts is going to happen to them. You know, climate change is very unequal in terms of the impacts while the world will have an impact those poor nations and poor individuals are most likely to have a disproportionate effect from it so when we're thinking about you know at each nation their own citizens we do need to factor in ways to actually ensure that there is not an unfair burden being paid by people who haven't actually contributed um, to that extent so it will require perhaps you know nuances in terms of um, credit social credits or social welfare structures whereby those who don't drive a car actually have a credit for not using something constantly we talk about solutions of adding this adding that but it's as important to take away so when we think about COVID, one of the best things that can come out of that is the work from home culture. Physically, people not going to the office means less transportation on the roads every day and less emissions. Our ability to be more efficient with the resources we do have is an incredibly important way of thinking about that. But at the same time, we must recognize that not everyone has the ability to sit at home and work from a computer that there are tradespeople, there are people that fundamentally travel for what they do and they shouldn't be unfairly burdened with the kind of reversal of decades of over emitting. Thanks Laura, well we'll leave it there for today. Um, in the third part of our, our pod looking at um, the road to net zero and how we get there, uh, we'll bring it back to looking at the company level, uh, at corporate and individual responsibility and how we can will play our part in the road to net zero. But for now, I'd just like to thank our guests again, Laura Sheehan and Andrew Parry, and we'll catch up with you soon.
Please note the following important information. Your capital may be at risk. The value of investments and the income from them can fall as well as rise and investors may not get back the original amount invested. This podcast is a financial promotion. Material in this podcast is for general information only. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Newton and should not be construed as investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security or commodity. Any reference to a specific country or sector should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell in this country or sector. Compared to more established economies, the value of investments in emerging markets may be subject to greater volatility due to differences in generally accepted accounting principles or from economic or political instability or less developed market practices. Where a portfolio has exposure to hedge funds, gold, private equity and property via publicly quoted transferable securities, there are additional risks associated with these sectors. This podcast is issued by Newton Investment Management Limited, the Bank of New York Mellon Centre, 160 Queen Victoria Street, London, EC4V4LA, registered in England, number 01371973. Newton Investment Management is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, 12 Endeavour Square, London, E20 1JN, and is a subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation. Newton, and or the Newton Investment Management brand, refers to Newton Investment Management Limited. Newton is registered with the SEC as an investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. Newton's investment business is described in form ADV Part 1 and 2, which can be obtained from the sec.gov website or obtained upon request. Personnel of certain of our BNY Mellon affiliates may act as 1. Registered representatives of BNY Mellon Securities Corporation in its capacity as a registered broker-dealer to offer securities. 2. Officers of the Bank of New York Mellon, a New York chartered bank, to offer bank-maintained collective investment funds, and three, associated persons of BNY Mellon Securities Corporation in its capacity as a registered investment advisor to offer separately managed accounts managed by BNY Mellon investment management firms, including Newton. Certain information contained herein is based on outside sources believed to be reliable, but their accuracy is not guaranteed. Unless you are notified to the contrary, The products and services mentioned are not insured by the FDIC or by any governmental entity and are not guaranteed by or obligations of the Bank of New York or any of its affiliates. The Bank of New York assumes no responsibility for the accuracy or completeness of the above data and disclaims all expressed or implied warranties in connection therewith. Copyright 2020, The Bank of New York Company, Inc. All rights reserved. In Canada, Newton Investment Management Limited is availing itself of the international advisor exemption in the following provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario and Quebec, and the Foreign Commodity Trading Advisor exemption in Ontario. The international advisor exemption is in compliance with National Instrument 31-103, registration requirements, exemptions and ongoing registrant obligations. In Australia and New Zealand, this podcast is for Australian wholesale clients and New Zealand wholesale investors only. 
and is not intended for distribution to, nor should it be relied upon by, retail clients. This information has not been prepared to take into account the investment objectives, financial objectives or particular needs of any particular person. Before making an investment decision, you should carefully consider, with or without the assistance of a financial advisor, whether such an investment strategy is appropriate in light of your particular investment needs, objectives and financial circumstances. Newton Investment Management Limited is exempt from the requirement to hold an Australian financial services licence in respect of the financial services it provides to wholesale clients in Australia and is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority of the UK under UK laws, which differ from Australian laws. Newton Investment Management Limited is authorised and regulated in the UK by the Financial Conduct Authority, 12 Endeavour Square, London, E21JN. Newton is providing financial services to wholesale clients in Australia in reliance on ACIC Corporation's Repeal and Transitional Instrument 2016 forward slash 396, a copy of which is on the website of the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, www.asic.gov.au. The instrument exempts entities that are authorised and regulated in the UK by the Financial Conduct Authority, such as Newton, from the need to hold an Australian financial services licence under the Corporations Act 2001 for certain financial services provided to Australian wholesale clients on certain conditions. Financial services provided by Newton are regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority under laws and regulatory requirements of the United Kingdom, which are different to the laws applying in Australia. Newton is providing financial services to wholesale investors in New Zealand in reliance on the safe harbour regime under the Financial Markets Conduct Act 2013, Schedule 1, Part 3.